having ADHD is like being in a tornado. You're being whipped around constantly over and over and over again. You can't control where you're bouncing. If things are going to stop, sometimes mental illness is like that. You're just hoping it stops somewhere. Breathing and recognizing your breath is finding that in the middle of that tornado, there's peace. That was Jim describing his experience of working with ADHD. From time to time, I get requests from people I don't know to go for coffee. I often decline, but sometimes my curiosity kicks in and I say yes. When I got Jim's message, something piqued my interest. We arranged to meet at Miro Tea in Seattle's Ballard neighborhood. On the day of our meeting, I'd been in a depression for several days and was feeling pretty miserable. I bought a pot of green tea with two cups and waited for Jim to arrive. Eventually, he walked in and looked around, trying to find a stranger he'd never met. I remember he was wearing a knit cap. Blind business meetings are a tricky business. Will you have anything to talk about? Fortunately, it was Jim who started asking the questions. His questions were insightful and more powerful than I'd expected from a typical business get-to-know-you meeting. After a while, Jim started to share his own story, including his experience with ADHD and his time spent in a Buddhist monastery studying under the well-known Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. Suddenly, I understood why he was asking such good questions, and I understood why he was so patient and curious. By the time our hour was over, I could feel my depression lifting. There was something about Jim, his authenticity, his presence, and his calm that helped ground me and brought me back into the real world. I mailed him later that day and asked him to share his story on the show. In this episode, Jim shares why he played truant for 45 days and what happened when he was caught. He reflects on a series of geographic and work changes that fed his ADHD and how that made his anxiety and depression worse. He explains how a near-death experience led him to pursue peace at a monastery. And finally, Jim shares why he left the monastery and what career he discovered that could use what he'd learned. Remember, Jim and I are just two people sharing our personal experience living with mental illness. If you're currently managing a mental illness and considering a change to your treatment approach, please consult with a trained medical professional. My name's James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here today with my guest, Jim. Jim, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Jim, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm 45 years old now. Obviously, we'll start with that so we can gradually go backwards. I was on the last military plane out of Saigon. I uh, came from the war. Uh, I happened to be only 10 months at that time. And my whole family of eight, I'm the youngest of eight children, and my parents, to get all our family from Saigon, Vietnam to Seattle in America was a challenge in itself. But then grew up in the Seattle area, went to college here. I wasn't like everyone else. Sometimes you recognize that early. Sometimes you recognize that a little bit later. My recognition of that was probably third grade. I I realized I I couldn't read. I was dyslexic. That on top of ADHD was a combination for a third grader, especially when you're asked to read in front of people. And Miss Simpson's class was probably the the class that, that did that. You know, I remember everything about she had this couch in the back of the classroom she would lay on. And she would ask people to read or recite poems or whatever that of that nature. And I was one of those people, when it came my turn, I just sat there. In my culture, obviously, uh, Vietnamese culture, there's, they don't recognize mental illness. You either can because you choose you can't. And those are the two options. They didn't know anything of that nature. They just thought I was being lazy or I was avoiding school or, and those natures. Um, but that caused me to rebel because it was obviously very traumatizing at that age to be in front of your peers and you can't do it. And then they laugh at you or they, you know, I start skipping school. I skipped almost 45 days at one time. Wow. Um, in a year, I see. In, in years straight. And then I got caught doing it. I would pack my lunch every morning and pretend I was going to school, walk out and I would split off from everybody. And then I leave the back window open to the house, jump, jump the fence 
and sneak back into the house. And I set up in the closet. And this was third grade? Uh, this was third grade. This was third grade. So, the, this was the first time I, I realized I was, I was different. Not knowing why. Obviously, even at that age, I was having anxiety with it. I was having traumatization with it. And I did that for about 45 days straight until finally we got a call. <laughs> My dad got a call or answered, returned a call and said, your son hasn't been to work at school. And they searched everywhere for me. And then finally, they checked the closet and I was in the closet. I got the spanking you. You remember for, for your life, lifetime. It was, yeah. it was quite difficult um, with that one. But because of that, I did some testing. And I had the learning disability. I had, I was dyslexia, uh, dealing with dyslexia and obviously with ADHD also. Um, so they switched schools at that time. Did they diagnose you with both? Both. At the same time? Both at the same time. Great. Um, at that time. So, but still at that, even to this day, my family members, so if they ever hear this podcast, they still never acknowledged it. They took it as rebellion instead of, hey, Jimmy's having difficulty with something. He's just rebelling. He's a, the loner kid. And so... He's different. He's different. He's different. We have eight kids. All of them are different in their own right. But he's just a little bit, because he was raised here majority of the time in America, He's he, that's just an American way. I see. So, he's a little less Vietnamese, yes. a little more American. Absolutely. How did your school accommodate the ADHD and the dyslexia? The ADHD was the difficult part, but what was great, they switched me to a school called Robinswood. At first, it was just to know that there were other people like me. That was, that was great. And like, oh, I'm not stupid. I think that was the word. My dad, unfortunately, used a term in Vietnamese. It's called Nu Yung Ba, which is stupid like a cow. Sometimes I'm wow, that's difficult, Dad, for a third, three-year-old. <laughs> third year is great sometimes. But I use that term with my brothers, my sisters, and sometimes that was kind of a joking manner, but I remember it because it was hurtful. But my dad was the school of hard knocks, I think, because he was never educated formally. And so, hence him being a janitor and a very difficult profession, not wanting that for his children. That was something, I think, why he was so harsh and difficult with us when it came to schooling. And obviously with me, with my learning disabilities, he's, he was a little bit more harsh. <laughs> so, at Robinswood, you met people for the first time who were like you. How did that school, apart from the socialization, how did that school help you learn in a different way? The intimacy aspect of it, those classrooms were smaller. We played a lot of games, a lot of things that required mo different modalities of learning. Uh, I remember playing King's Corner card games with my ADHD when you're given multiple things to try to find and connect different images together or concepts together. I think that was um, what attracted me to Legos too building blocks and putting things together because my mind naturally was all over the place. There's pieces to everything that were, I was constantly being attracted to. I looked at it, now I look at it as you're just, your mind is open to everything, unfiltered. And that's where it gets overwhelmed, especially at a younger age. And obviously with the reading aspect, they spent, because of the smaller classrooms, they, you had a lot more one-on-one -on -one with the teacher in regards to that. And because of being around other students that had learning disabilities, a variety of different learning disabilities, it wasn't as embarrassing. Teachers were more geared to teach towards your challenges in that way where it wasn't as embarrassing to, to try. And this would have been roughly when? Uh, that was, I was in third, they discovered third grade. So I was at Robinswood for two more, two to three more years. In middle school, sixth grade, I rejoined traditional education. Unfortunately, Robinswood was closed down due to budgetary and so on and so forth. So all of us had to reintegrate into traditional education. The positive side is all the people that were I dealt with and my friends at that time went with me. With traditional education, obviously, you don't have the, as much one-on-one -on -one time. You had a brotherhood and sisterhood of people who, you know, at least you were connected to, maybe made you feel less alone correct. In, your, in your illness. Correct, correct. But then you deal with, like, all, every every child deals with social issues. And obviously, in the more traditional education, when you're integrated, your differences are um, more aware. And then peer pressures come and, and such. So, I was always the outcast group, you know, I was always the mining, other than my being Asian myself, I was automatically thrown kind of in the minority group because I was not, I was even an additional minority on top because I'm Asian and I struggle with education. Um, not, oh, they come to Jimmy for being the smartest kid or the, oh, he should know math or he should be those good at those things. But I wasn't traditionally great at those subject matters, you know, because of my learning disabilities. Kind of a, almost a double outcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 
you know, but I excelled where I, I was able to integrate was doing sports. One thing with ADHD is there's a physicality. You, use your, you learn through your right side of your brain, which controls your motor act functions and such. So doing things that required motor skills really helped my learning, but also helped me develop discipline. And that's where I was able to connect to normal kids, um, was through physical activity, sports, running, track, okay. skateboarding. You I know, didn't know you were a skateboarder. At, at that time, not anymore. My knees can't handle any longer. Um, Mine either. Due to too much, I was talking to my other half about being too extreme growing up. But that's what fed my today, my mindfulness of today. Where did your journey go? You moved from Robinswood into the regular school system. What's the kind of next milestone on, on your journey? Moving forward, it was going to college, going to UW and realizing a thousand people in your classroom. That was not the learning environment. You pay for school, but you don't interact with school that much. I would buy test files. I'd find other ways to teach myself to learn this subject matter. Being dyslexic also, is it was extremely difficult too, uh, learning traditional, traditional subject matter. But I think that's where my creativity kind of surfaced with that. What were you studying? Obviously, a lot of Asian parents, they want a doctor, lawyer, engineer. You, you're put into that bucket automatically. So, they want you to go into the sciences. They want you to be an engineer. Math was not my subject, being a right-brained person. But I would do it. I'm very logical, but also I learn through my right. And so, there's always that conflict that it bounces and defeats itself some, some certain times. So, I, I doubled major in business also. Both those, one major to please my parents and one major that just helped me get along, just the backup major. Which path did you end up taking? Both. I graduated with both. After the first year, I realized that I don't like suffering. And so I leaned towards, in, because I guess it's my laziness and my, I, my ability that I realized I, I don't want to suffer forever. So I actually pushed myself harder to graduate earlier, to leave. I visited Hawaii in college. At that time, I fell in love and I was like, I'm going to graduate early and, and move to Hawaii. But anxiety obviously kept on growing because I was just pushing, pushing until I would break and then try to pick up the pieces and then push more because that's what I was taught from my parents. That's what they did, leaving the country, watching them take care of eight children. That's what all they did. They didn't know any, anything else. I think that drive, I adopted that drive of them. Is that healthy in today's world? And what I realized later on, not always. You know, you can't just hammer your way through everything. You end up striking your thumb a lot. With mental illness, we, we strike it even more harder. Right. <laughs> and, we, right. and we just keep on pounding it yeah. and knocking ourselves. And I think yeah. over time, that's when I just, the anxiety increased. Yeah. My moments of depression started mm -hmm. to reveal after anxiety. You, you just push through anxiety or you ignore it as much as you can and wait for it to a little opening. And then you just push more. But every single time you push through it, sometimes in that way, it comes back stronger. How did you experience uh, anxiety? Panic attacks. I think that was the first time it was in college that I started having panic attacks and bouts of depression. Obviously, I've self-medicated at that time through alcohol and, and such, and, and that's how I dealt with it. You know, going out or being extreme in sports, letting that frustration out. I would just sometimes go run in the rain. Uh, that was one of the things I would go do, no matter if it was cold out or anything like that. I would just do something physical that was extreme to try to let out that energy. I was going to say almost sounded a little bit like um, kind of self-harm in a way. Yeah. Like taking control by like, I'm going to go run in the rain, right. which is stupid, but it's my decision to be stupid. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Obviously, skateboarding, snowboarding, skiing, um, doing those outdoor activities, you know, biking until I can't bike any longer. It helped me feel again. Feel something other than the anxiety. More depression. Absolutely. Or, yeah. More depression. So I think that was my way to escape those moments of depression. I didn't even know it was depression at that time. You think it's just stress. You just think that you don't want to be around people, but we don't recognize it's, it's a spiraling experience. I see it much more now that I've gone through it my whole life. You recognize, I recognize it in the world so much more often. And I think this is why this podcast is beneficial to the world because there's a lot of people that might be dealing with it don't know what it is uh, they don't have modalities to deal with it or they don't know there's a community out here it's interesting to me the progression that you've gone through i don't know if progression is the right word but you started with adhd and dyslexia mm -hmm. in school that caused you ultimately to push yourself 
pretty hard when you got to college, which led you to anxiety. And then it feels like the anxiety is what led you ultimately to depression. Mm. So it's kind of a chain mm. there. Absolutely. They were, I think they were all building blocks to each other. Conditions that presented a fruitfulness of depression, I guess you could say. In the big picture, looking back, I kept on dealing with depression. I kept on changing my, my circumstances when I could not cope any longer. I don't know if that was my ADHD kicking in to try to save me. Let's switch to something else. Let's switch to this. Let's switch to that. Maybe switching will help change it. And I bet it did for a while. It did. I, I wanted to leave my family. I felt embarrassed to be around my family. I couldn't explain I, why I couldn't. So I, you know, finished college early, moved to Hawaii, got disowned, you know. Wow. Um, I've been disowned a couple times, four or five times by my parents. But okay. I think it's because they wouldn't understand. They never dis- understood certain things. And it's not their fault. I don't blame them. Obviously, it was harsh for me. They're my parents, but I, I also la- realized that they couldn't conceive of these things, trying to conform to what they thought happiness and success was. So, you changed your place uh, to Hawaii, mm-hmm. in this case, um, as a way of escaping for a while from depression and anxiety. But I'm going to bet that um, those things crept back in. Absolutely. Eventually. Absolutely. I did pick up surfing to help deal with that. Another extreme sport. <laughs> Riding bigger waves I should than I should have and near-death experiences and climbing cliffs in the middle of the night that I shouldn't have. But those, it kept coming back, obviously. I worked at a restaurant my first year and then volunteered at a hospital and um, a Catholic hospital there in their dental center, trying to keep my mind active and keep the parents at bay. And then I became a dialysis nurse randomly. I, I, I met, I had lunch one day in the hospital and this nun came and sat next to me and I was just sharing my story and we were just eating and talking. And a week later, I found out she was the CEO of that hospital. Something I said connected with her. Maybe it was because I had a business degree and I had capacity to learn scientific things. But I think it's my ability to connect with people's difficulties and not be afraid to share about my own. That helped with patient care. Went through a short program there and, and actually became work with uh, kidney failure patients for the next four years when I was in Hawaii. And so you deal with a lot of different things. You deal with codes and death and people that are on the last leg of their lives or trying to cope with that, which was very nourishing. Again, it, I think it brought me back to Robinswood that I'm not the only one suffering. It's weird. People with mental illness, it's sometimes it's we... Um, I think everyone, not just mental illness, but I think everyone, it's like we we find camaraderie and some sort of like state solace that we're not alone, even though our condition makes us feel alone all the time. But by focusing on someone else's suffering, it helps me work with my own a little bit at that time or provide environment for me to be at least grateful because someone else's day sucks even worse than mine today. (laughs) You know, I thought my day was bad. They don't have any kidneys. I was going to say, at least my kidneys work. Yeah, yeah, they have a third of their blood out of them at this time that I'm working through them. They're dealing with all sorts of physical pains and ailments and emotional trauma. I think helping, uh, that's how it's always been me. It's My personality was never one to just give up and there was a, a way... I was actually surprised to learn that there was a special school in Seattle in the 80s for kids with ADHD and other learning difficulties. But I'm grateful because it was once Jim was outside the general school population that he started to thrive. The current wisdom in the Seattle school system is to integrate with kids with ADHD into the school population as much as is possible. It's interesting to hear Jim talk about how much better he felt being part of a community where they were all, in inverted commas, outsiders. Would he have fared better in the current system, where he was integrated to the overall school population with dedicated support, including additional teachers to help him succeed? I don't know. We should consider that, as we, the community of people with mental illness in the workplace, advocate for ourselves, that we're asking for additional resources, just like those provided to Jim and those provided in schools today. Those resources could be the time and patience of our co-workers or a desk that faces the window. It seems like things started to unravel for Jim once he got into college and the ADHD drive, combined with parental expectations, started him searching for something that brought him peace. Even the purpose and meaning of being a dialysis nurse couldn't stop his itchy feet, and it wasn't long 
before Jim was back on the mainland pursuing a new career. So you are out uh, in Hawaii. You have learned to be a dialysis nurse. What was it ultimately that brought you back to the to the mainland? Hawaii is great. It was beautiful, but there was something missing. But also my anxiety was coming back, dealing with high pressure situations. And I got to a certain point where I realized it's like I, I'm covering again. Maybe I need it. I'm, I'm hitting roadblocks. I started also dealing with depression, even in Hawaii. I have a love for music. It was one of my things and hip hop and, and such. And I randomly ran into someone in Hawaii. We connected in such a cool way. He offered me, hey, you know, I promote these large events up there and put together productions, large event productions, mostly in music, but he was working with artists I, I love from Wu-Tang Clan to uh, J5 to Eric Badu to Common, but also electronica music in the Bay Area. So, you know, so I, I, let's change it up because I realized at that time also with nursing, my heart was in it, but the environment with nursing at that time patient loads going up, quality care going, I believe, down, me having arguments with doctors all the time with God complexes that had zero compassion. Pretty big change from a dialysis nurse to somebody promoting the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it, was, it was a big, big change. But I think um, ADHD loves that. <laughs> ADHD loves change, loves something different. I went ahead and did that and moved to the Bay Area. Unfortunately, the dot-com crash happened literally right after that. Uh, I moved down to LA. I only stayed in the Bay Area for about a year and a half, year. And then, you know, obviously at that time, people lost a lot. And so th those events were not as, companies weren't spending that much money on those type of events and such. So uh, work brought me down to LA. I experienced LA, got into more marketing, advertising work and got connected to through some friends with banking and went into the mortgage banking world because of money. You know, for me at that time, money was freedom. Like everyone else, it was uh, identity. Yeah. Things were identity. I can finally, okay, show mom and dad I was good enough. I didn't need to be a doctor. Didn't have to be a doctor. I could still handle it. The beauty of the ADHD, you learn to adapt very quickly. Uh, I learned to adapt very quickly in that aspect through change of conditions, changing all conditions and seeing what was there. I got into the mortgage banking business. I did very well in that business until it crashed. But before it crashed, people don't understand or they don't get it because they don't have mental illness. They just think you're being a prick or an asshole, which I probably was. By a certain measuring stick. Absolutely. Someone I love very deeply, it, we were having harsh difficulties at that time, uh, arguments and um, life was good on the outside. I was really good at painting the picture on the outside um, where people, which we all do with mental illness, that deal with it they're like, oh, they're great everywhere else. It's like almost a sleight of hand. We get into the sleight of hand practice a lot of times, which I, this is why, actually why I like this podcast, because it allows us to kind of face it, that we don't have to play sleight of hand all the time. It brings it out in the open a little bit more, uh, especially in the business world, professional world. So the pattern I'm hearing is job, you know, increased anxiety, depression, desire to change, change to something else, each of them's being in a very different field. At some point, something happens that puts you on a different path. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, about that? I think it was my relationship with my ex at that time that I was so in love with her. Like Guga, like a baby in love. I remember we had an argument and her mom gave this book. And we had an argument and she tossed it at me. And one of those arguments, and I almost tossed it back at her. But when I was about to throw it back at her, the title of his book was Anger, Wisdom for Cooling the Flames. But that word stuck out to me. And then right in smaller font underneath it, Wisdom for Cooling the Flames. I stopped that moment instead of throwing that book back at her. I recognized my anger. And I, I sat down and read that book that day. I didn't know who this person was. His name was Thich Nhat Hanh. I think at that time, as I was dealing with all, all these issues, I tore my Achilles tendon. Uh, someone stepped on it with a stiletto and snapped it at a concert. I mentioned earlier about being in extreme sports. That was my meditation. That was my way to deal, to be in the moment. Obviously, at that time, I didn't know that was meditation. But once I was taking that, that opportunity to be present was taken away through my torn Achilles tendon, those anxiety attacks got increased in number. 
increase in depth of sorrow, loneliness, helplessness, lack of compassion, self-care, which bled out into that relationship that I, had, I was hurting the person I love so much. I wasn't being understanding. I wasn't being compassionate. I couldn't be compassionate to myself. I was dealing with pancreatitis too. I even got physical ailments from it where I was hospitalized over and over again. Doctors not knowing why. I almost died wow. one, one day. I spit up blood and passed out on my floor. I think that was a, a wake-up call. I literally wanted to die. I dreamt of my uncle that night. I was ready to go, but I just remember his face and his smile. Like, don't give up. And I remember waking up the next day because, you know, that's like, if I make it through this night, I got to figure out a way. Something's not working again. I got to change things up. So when I got checked out of the hospital, I, I read some more of Thich Nhat Hanh's books. He had about 200 books. I said, I don't have any other options. Doctors are not figuring this out. I keep on getting pancreatitis. I might die at any time. I need to find some sort of peace because I'm not at peace. I have tons of regrets. People color retreat. I asked, hey, can I come down? Oh, we're booked. Thich Nhat Hanh's in town. Tons of people come down and visit him. This is a bad time if you didn't make an appointment or get space early. I went down anyway. Went down and they said, there's no space. I thought we told you we have no space. I said, I'll just sleep in a tent. You won't even see me. I'll be a fly on the wall. Something in his books resonated with me. I grew up not being very religious, maybe because I'm very logical in certain aspects. I didn't believe in hocus pocus. Everything was very ritual to me. A lot of religions. But I spent, it was the people of color retreat, people of all different cultures and races and, and uh, religions, atheists, gay, not gay. Uh, all these people were there and they all carried one single thing. They were all suffering. And I've never seen all these type of people in one place. And that retreat probably had about 800 people or so. And the nun said, hey, uh, everyone's put, I'm going to this room in this one group, it's the abuse group. Uh, I went to that group and I was the only male other than this, the monk and nun leading this group. And they split everyone into these little groups. And I remember this big circle, like 20 people and such. And it was silent. It was just crickets. It was a sharing group. Their practice was about being compassionate and together. In Buddhism, it's called the three jewels. One is the Buddha, your own awakeful nature. One is the Dharma, the wisdom that you find in the moment. And one is the Sangha, people that practice together with that. I never did that. You know, kind of being dealing with depression and being introverted, there's a loneliness to it. Want to be out in the light. You don't want to expose yourself. Being in this group, I, it was so silent, too much for my ADHD. I said, screw it. Let me share something. <laughs> I like, let me break the ice because no one was sharing. And I shared about my, my dad beating me that day from skipping school. But the minute I shared that, everyone just, the dam broke for everybody. They start sharing moments of abuse, either sexual or whatever thing else that they dealt with. And it was very healing. By the end of that sharing, everyone's crying. And it's weird when you cry like that in an authentic way with other people that are suffering. It gives you space to be you to be with your difficulties, holy. Three days go by, and I've never seen people from all these different backgrounds. So kumbaya. I'm like, what did they put? Did they put something in the water here? I remember Thich Nhat Hanh, someone asked, it was a gay couple that were Christian, and they said, what do you think of us? You know, we're told to evangelize, but we're not accepted. Uh, he said, do you believe the bird and the tree are both God's creatures? And they're like, yeah, but does the tree tell the bird not to be a bird and the bird tell the tree not to be a tree, but they both support each other. I'm not here to tell you to be anything than you are what you are. I was very, I was like, whoa, revolutionary for me. After that three days, though, I think that was, I've never been around that. They never told you what to do, never told you what was right or wrong. In fact, probably pointedly wouldn't tell you what to do, they even not. if you asked. Yeah. Everything was an invitation, though. Yeah. That was beautiful. Everyone's invitation, there was a sense of freedom and everything. You can come walk with us, you can come meditate, or you can choose not to. It's up to. But I think if you're, you're mindful and you're in the moment, if you feel something that allows you to, and, and this invitation is welcome, follow that, even if it's uncomfortable. Well, let's all sit in uncomfort together. There's a togetherness with it. And I guess that resonated with me going to Robinswood, finally to be with other people that are like me, or dealing with a moment, moments in life that were so heavy on your own. After that moment, I actually asked to stay after that three-day retreat. I remember asking, can I stay? And they're like, how long? I go, as long as it takes. 
I go, I just got out of the hospital, almost died. I don't have any answers, but something felt right here this last three days. The conditions were there for me, hopefully to find some sort of peace or clarity with my life. I started feeling grateful. I think that was a big part of it. And so I stayed. Meditating for ADHD person is not easy. I'm like, I can never do this. I can never sit still. I can't eat vegetarian food. You're kidding me. What was great about being around these monks and nuns, they made everything beautiful. They were so in a moment, they made vegetarian food delicious. They made sitting meditation such a beautiful, graceful act that you kind of wanted to do it. I'd wake up early to try to um, sit behind Thich Nhat Hanh every morning just to resonate some of his energy. But everyone wanted to do that. So I actually woke up like an hour and a half before everyone else did, like 4 a.m. It's so beautiful at the monastery. I remember waking up, there would be a monk, they would ring this bell and start chanting. And you hear it slightly in the distance as you slowly, gradually wake up. Um, but I would wake up before everybody. I would sit and I, I would look at this ridge. I remember looking at this tree up on this ridge. Months go by, you know, I actually end up traveling with them the UCLA School of Psychotherapy, you know, they visit Google and Oprah, and we just travel sharing mindfulness with people, running, being with retreats with them. I was like, how can some breathing bring so much clarity? Something we literally do without thinking about most of the time. And I, I think that was something that, um, to learn how to breathe, even though we do it, this tool of groundedness and spaciousness and healing and compassion and equanimity Breathing allows us to come to that place, to anchor to that place. I think a lot of people have heard the words mindfulness over the last I don't know, decade or so. Some people may have dabbled in meditation a little bit. How would you explain mindfulness to someone? Mindfulness is not what you think, literally. Having an active mind with ADHD, we're constantly bombarded with thoughts, sensations, feelings, but simple practice of, of, of being the moment, because it requires no thinking to breathe. You can't breathe in the past. You can't breathe in the future. It requires no emotion or no thoughts to breathe. So if you follow your breath, you go to a place that thinking doesn't have to exist. You're still part of your thoughts. You're still connected to your emotions, but there's almost a spaciousness to it. For me, it led to being more conscious, obviously, and more awareness, which is what Buddha means. It's not a sky. <laughs> a lot of people, oh, you're Buddhist, and it's a sky on the tree, and, you know, a prince, and all this other stuff. That's great, great romantic story, but it was much more, for me, it was just like a person that dedicated to, to be more conscious, to be awake. That's what all Buddha means, is to be awake. I think um, dealing with mental illness is that we go to sleep a lot. Constantly trying going, you're going to sleep with, you know, we try to medicate to try to wake up. We try to, at least to cope, have a conditions to wake up. And I remember this thing, it's called the Four Noble Truths in Buddhism. There's suffering, the conditions that create suffering, the removal of those conditions, which is the third noble truth. And then the last one is sensation of suffering, which is happiness. I was like, this is stupid simple. You stayed at the monastery, you learned mindfulness. I'm projecting that your anxiety, depression reduced some? They reduce a lot. We live so unmindfully in today's society, and we see the repercussions of that in our environment, in the way we treat people, our relationships. With mindfulness, with the practice of meditation, being in the moment, first it's the practice of being aware. When you breathe, you recognize that I'm alive. When you breathe, you can also recognize your body, that I'm in this body. I, you can recognize, oh, I'm sore. I, can, I need to adjust my posture. And when you, there was a formal, about this formal sitting practice is that you learn to be aware with one point of focus of just your breath. Requires no thinking, like I mentioned before. But as you learn to just follow your breath, that one-pointed focus expands. It's almost like uh, imagery-wise, if I could paint the picture, is having ADHD is like being in a tornado. You're being whipped around constantly, over and over and over again. You can't control where you're bouncing, if things are going to stop. Sometimes mental illness is like that. You're just hoping it stops somewhere. Breathing and recognizing your breath is finding that in the middle of that tornado, there's 
peace, this stillness. And that center tornado allows you to come back, anchor to that place. I never really recognized the, the joy of breathing before. And I think just being around people all day long with these bells that literally would ring constantly, <laughs> almost an annoying factor at certain times. <laughs> it's funny. It's like freeze tag. You walked in a monastery and, and the bell would ring and everyone would stop. If they were cooking, they would stop. If they were talking, they would stop and come back to their breath. If it be three or four, come back to the moment. If it be for how many breaths you needed. And there was a acceptance of that. And when you do it 24 hours a day, and when everyone is doing it, it's really hard for you not to be mindful. In this section, Jim notes that the monks at the monastery didn't tell him what to do or what was right and wrong. Listening back, I realized there was a deeper truth to that statement. I grew up in a loosely Christian household and sang in a church choir for years, but none of the teachings of Christianity ever stuck for me. Everything seemed too binary. Black, white, saint, sinner, do this, don't do that. As a result, I drifted from any sort of faith or spiritual system. Much later in life, I was going through a, a rough patch. I think it was sometime after I'd started to get sober and my mum had been diagnosed with cancer. A friend bought me Pema Chodron's book, When Things Fall Apart, and it was well-timed. Pema is a Buddhist nun, similarly famous to Thich Nhat Hanh, and I guess life-changing Buddhist books can come into your life in lots of different ways, whether they're thrown in frustration or slid across the table while eating Chinese food. I read When Things Fall Apart and appreciated the simplicity and sincerity of it. Solving our problems was within all of us, and the required steps to do that are ones we had to figure out for ourselves. I wouldn't describe myself as a Buddhist, primarily because I make little effort to live my life by the Four Noble Truths or follow the Eightfold Path. But of every religion, faith, or spiritual approach I've found, it makes the most sense to me. And maybe that's what's important, finding the approach that works for you. Jim is extraordinarily lucky to be able to explore Buddhism under Thich Nhat Hanh, or Thai, as Jim calls him. It's clear that practicing mindfulness tempered his ADHD a lot. It calmed the tornado. Jim was on the verge of entering the monkhood when Thai made an observation that led Jim to leave the monastery and pursue a career helping young people make more enlightened decisions about their education. Finally, he has some words of encouragement for other people with ADHD. You're on this journey at the uh, monastery. It's beautiful, peaceful place. It sounds like, you know, you're learning to really be with, you know, your depression and anxiety, or rather with the present moment. Depression and anxiety are going down. Yet here we are sat in Seattle, not in a monastery. So how did you end up leaving and where did you go from there? Well, I, I went to the doctor while I was at the monastery and the, uh, just for my checkups for my pancreatitis. And they said, what do you do? And I go, why? And he goes, you're, all your blood works are just completely healthy now. Everything's reversed. I did not, while at the time at the monastery, panic attacks came up, but the duration of them went shortened. There was loneliness, but there was conditions for the for me to be with it in a healthy way. I shaved my head, almost gave away everything. I was actually on my way to go to France to become a monk. And we had a, a college retreat with young people. And um, I remember connecting to these youth that dealt with hearing stories, just like we are on this podcast of suffering and what they're dealing with. And I would share my story, I'd share my practice, and they would practice with us. And I remember at the end of the retreat, there was a sharing, and a lot of them mentioned me by name, almost to the point where I felt weird. Typically, it was the monks that have been practicing for a long time, or even Thay Thich Nhat Hanh, that they would mention. I cried like a baby. I was in the background, I remember I cried to the point where I couldn't pee for the next day or so. <laughs> I was so dehydrated from crying. But it was so nourishing. We sat in his porch, stupid, we were swinging our feet, and he said, maybe you're not meant to be a monk. Maybe you were a monk in your last lifetime. That's why you picked things up and the, the conditions were ripe. And he says, obviously, you have ability to connect to people. Not everyone can be a monk or a nun. Tai says, ah, if the Buddha gets in your way, smash it. That's not the real Buddha. And I thought that was so 
revolutionary. And he almost gave me permission to, you know, I want to help people. I have a Dharma name he gave me, vast loving tenderness of the heart. Mm. Uh, I used to ask him, why is, why you give me vast? That's a lot of expectations. I'm lazy. <laughs> vast is so big. <laughs> I was able to find my purpose, I think, there, a sense of purpose when it came to helping others. My ADHD that allowed me to be sensitive to everything around me gave me a sensitivity to everything, positive or less positive. From being a year there, I realized with everyone in the professional world, from doctors, lawyers, engineers, soldiers that visit the monastery, to other types of people, that they all were suffering. We were all suffering in so many ways from being unmindful, unaware. But at that time, I didn't know, like, okay, how can I help them? But I've, I haven't left the monastery. I've been here a year. Mm-hmm. I go out for a little bit. I, I walk with the Sangha, with everyone else. They keep it. I've had it for this year here. I've had this sense of peace and happiness First time in my life for a year, a radical acceptance of every moment. How can I share that with people? I, I almost felt selfish. Like if I stay here, I'm, I'm being selfish. I need to go share it with my loved ones. I believe it was a conscious choice, a moment of wakefulness that says, I'm miserable. This sucks. I need to change because I don't want to keep on feeling this. And I realized it had epiphany. I remember reading a book and you have to really love what you do. It's that saying, you know, everyone says it nonchalantly, but I realized all these majority of everyone I talked to really didn't enjoy their work. If I wanted to reduce suffering in the world, for me, I realized I'd help people find a career that they love. If I asked everyone here to ask me, what is happiness to them? Most people have no idea. It's this, oh, I'm happy. Majority of times, it's they're distracted, or they don't even know why it makes them happy. I'm drinking my tea. Why does this make you happy? Because when I recognize this tea, I recognize that it's steep for 20 seconds. I recognize that, hey, there was a farmer that had to pick this tea. I'm drinking a cloud. Tai says a lot. You drink When you drink your tea, you drink a, t- a cloud. You can be part of the cloud. But a lot of people don't, haven't recognized those things of happiness for them if it be something simple or more complicated. How did you then help people find their happiness, their purpose? What made them happy? In today's world, we're so reactive and not proactive. It helped me, and I want to share with people that we can be proactive, but we lack the tools. Majority of people lack the spaciousness to be proactive. We're constantly going from one thing to another. Me, evident with my ADHD, we're going from one thing to another. We're trying to take care of everyone else. We're distracting ourselves from our own unhappiness. And it builds up over time. And we work in jobs or we work in environments that don't allow us to be mindful. For what? Because mom and dad said having this means happiness. Society says this is happiness or success. Society says this is normal. We judge ourselves so harshly, constantly. There's this story that Tai shared with me. He says, if I have this cup and someone's supposed to drink, your loved ones are supposed to drink out of this cup, but I put a handful of salt in this cup, can anyone drink it? And I'm like, no. If you put that same handful of salt in a big river, can you drink the water and your loved ones drink out of that water? I go, yeah, because the river, that salt is not enough. That salt is suffering. Our own difficulties, our own depression, our own, all these things we don't take care of that are in our lives, that's part of life. I was making everyone around me suffer. And he goes, well, when you practice mindfulness, you turn yourself from the cup to the river. And you have enough spaciousness, like the river has enough spacious, dilute all the suffering. How your mindfulness practice help you, you know, in your work? I wanted to really help people find a career that they love. Obviously, you know, helping the youth, uh, our children are our future. Sometimes I realize helping the people that are already adults, they equally need the help, but it's harder for them to change things. And I realize I'm lazy. Let me work with the children first or the youth so that way their mindfulness can spread through their families, can spread through other things, uh, the people they come in contact with. I was able to ask questions to interview students every day about their goals, about their values. I would invite their parents and loved ones there, if it be an adult or someone in high school trying to figure things out. You know, majority of parents never ask, what is happiness to you? 
I mean, all the people that I met at the monastery and even after, they didn't know what happiness was. They didn't know the conditions that revealed happiness. They never asked why. Oh, that they, they were force-fed happiness, which really didn't make them happy. You took that mindset that you'd learned in the monastery of creating space for learning, not necessarily telling somebody what to do to help students that were coming through the Art Institute make good choices about where they went next. Absolutely. Even if not going to the Art Institute was the choice. Even recognizing, questioning, helping them question why was that important to them. What were the conditions of happiness? I would make, actually invite every student to write a list of what happiness was to them. How did they feel when they were happy? And some people have never done that before. A third list of what are the difficulties keeping them from reaching those, connecting what makes them happy to their future. And then have them reflect on those three lists. And we would just sit and talk about those things. Parents would like, oh, he's doing homework. He's actually doing what you're saying. Uh, they've never seen their child write about these things. I learned more about my daughter in the last hour and a half interview with you than her whole life. Because he never created space to be mindful of her, what she really wanted, or how she felt, or challenged her to create that space for herself. Earlier in your career, it felt like you were changing roles fairly frequently. How did your stay at the Art Institute compare to earlier in your career? Well, I just ended my, uh, my stay with Art Institute, but the 10 years I was there, I still dealt with challenges in life. You know, I moved back here to take care of my parents, which brought a whole nother level of challenges. Yes, I bet. My elderly parents, all my old afflictions and suffering revealed themselves again very quickly because the conditions that caused my suffering were in my face again. And I had to deal with it. My anxiety came back just like it was before. You know, so it's these, it's not like you get to this place and it's hunky-dory all the time. Again, as the first noble truth says, there is suffering, Yes, i.e. everybody suffers. Yes, absolutely. I realized for me to be there for everyone else, I need to be there for myself. I have to recognize those conditions for myself. If I'm still this cup and not the river, I'm not much help to people or myself. So I always come back with that. I think that's career-wise, I think that's so important in today's world. Finding a company, finding a career that connects to you, your sense of purpose or your sense of intention. I think intention equals attention. And I think that's lacking in a lot of work environments today, that they don't give you the space or recognition of what your intention is. If you could speak to somebody who works with ADHD, what would you like to share with those people? I think the first thing is breathe. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I think because that's the first thing I come with. I think it's relative to everything. I always breathe. If it be breathing at the stoplight, conscious breathing, or recognizing my steps. What I loved about the monastery, it's not just sitting. Meditation isn't just when you're sitting. It's drinking your tea. It's listening. Peace is every step. Peace in every step. Absolutely. He said, looking at the book, yeah. the Thich Nhat Hanh book that's on the table. Yeah. If you could go back in time to mm -hmm. a point on your journey and whisper something in your ear, where would you go and what would you say? I think gratitude helped me. I, I, looking back in time, I wouldn't change a thing about my journey. I wouldn't change the suffering. I wouldn't change my depression. I wouldn't change my ADHD. I wouldn't change the tears and the loneliness. Because there were all conditions for me to be awake now. Without those things, I would be a completely different person. And I think that's with people with any mental illness. Don't judge yourself. See that when you breathe, you can recognize that all these are leading to this wonderful place. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's difficult. But those conditions are ripening. And they'll ripen to a place just like when I was on my deathbed, to a point where I was forced to breathe, unfortunately. But it was fortunate also, equally fortunate. When I tore my Achilles tendon, I look back and I go, oh, unfortunately, I, I lost those types of meditation. But I look back as that forced me to learn how to breathe even more through sitting practice and things because I was immobile. It provided an environment for me to sit down and enjoy reading and learn how to communicate with those areas. It led me to another place that I could bring all of me. Hate to be a John Legend song, but um, <laughs> to help the world. You know, I think that this place in the world, I want to go back to the business world now because I realized that school is great. I want to help the youth. Even if I help them, they're going into an environment, professional world that is inconducive to being mindful. 
And so whatever I help them with, it's going to deteriorate over time because the environment with professional environment right now sometimes is so goal oriented in certain aspect that it's not conducive aware to take care of everyone, to accept everyone for what they are, accept different ideas from the top down. There's lack of openness. There's lack of equanimity. Everyone's good at saying it. Oh, I have company culture. I have this and that. But uh, do they even provide the environments to sit? or to be still, or to breathe in certain aspects, or it's just another distraction. That's what I taught at the school, actually. You know, sometimes I would just share mindfulness. Who wants to take a walk with me? I did a lightsaber. Uh, I had, I'm a Star Wars fan, so I brought my lightsaber in so everyone could listen to the sound of a lightsaber and breathe with the sound of a lightsaber. So students would do that. Make it fun. Provide environments that can help people. First, just to be aware, aware of the moment. I think that leads to empathy environment to be empathetic, to be accepting that you're not. And that's very healthy. That's great. I think that's a beautiful place for us to end. So Jim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Wishing you well. I strongly believe that there's work we're well suited to and some we're less suited to. I know a lot of people who do work they think that they should do. For example, I had a friend who was a veterinarian because his family thought it was a respectable career. And now he hates his job. Doing the should work makes him miserable. Should work makes everybody miserable. Jim decided to dedicate 10 years of his life to helping students make good decisions about their education and their careers as an admissions and enrollment counsellor. He tried to help them avoid their should choices using his ability to ask questions and his ability to create space for people to slow down and think. Jim brought everything he learned at the monastery to bear, asking people questions rather than telling, treating answers as neither right nor wrong. What I'm taking out of talking to Jim is the importance of slowing down. Slowing down at work. Slowing down at home. Slowing down before you throw the book. Take a breath at the stoplight. Meditation and mindfulness have been shown to help a lot with mental health conditions. And I know it works from my own experience. And if finding peace means that I can spend an hour in Jim's presence and it pulls me out of a depression, imagine what it could do if we all found that peace and applied it as a way of living. I hope you've enjoyed listening to my conversation with Jim today. If you have enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd share it with somebody else or maybe a few people who you think might enjoy it too. You can also leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to find out new episodes as they're released, you can join our mailing list at silentsuperheroes.com or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash silentsuperheroes. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call one 800 273 8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.